0: From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bema. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Dan Grunfeld, author, son of former Knicks executive Ernie Grunfeld, and former professional basketball player. Dan discusses what it was like to live in his father's shadow, shares the inspiring story of his grandmother during the Holocaust, and explains what we can all learn from the game of basketball. Also, recapping Rabbi Brody's trip to Israel, and trying to find the balance between self-promotion and marketing Torah. All this and more, Behind the Bema.
1: Good evening, Wednesday 9 p.m. I am your host, Rabbi Ephraim We're joined by my colleague and dear friend, back after a long break, Rabbi Josh Brody, and we are here to take you...
2: Behind the Beamer. It is so <laughs> great funny. to be
1: back. First of all, it's great to have you back. It's great to have you say Behind the Beamer properly. We had a phenomenal guest co-host last week. It best we ever had, the, Re- the Rebbitson. But when I teed her up for, and we're here to take you, she's like, Behind the Beamer... <laughs> um, she was amazing she's fantastic coast in fact i got the most feedback maybe i've ever gotten about have to have her more often basically right. telling me you stay home she was great so maybe, maybe there's
2: maybe there's a spin-off show maybe there's like a interesting you know, behind the bema rebbinson edition or something interesting interesting yeah. well we're gonna have to we're gonna have to work on the exuberance and excitement for the behind <laughs> the bema this has taken years to perfect that you know this is not uh didn't just happen, happen overnight. That's yeah. true.
1: We, we can go back. Soon we will go back because we are almost up to the 100th episode and we are going to have big celebration, special guests, maybe a little uh, trivia competition. We might even have people who uh, share their favorite. Uh, in fact, we're going to invite our uh, guests, our listeners, our audience to share their favorite moment on Behind the Bima. Not us. We don't need it. It's not our ego. The guests that we've had. We've had, we will have had almost 100 phenomenal, fascinating, diverse, cross-the-spectrum guests. Tell us your favorite moments. What did you learn? What did you grow? How did you change? Who were you inspired by? What really spoke out to you? And we're looking forward to being able to have that. So you could talk about how you have worked on your foundation sure. uh, of behind the
2: BEMA. And I'm looking for that super fan out there. I wonder if there are some super fans that just know so much about the history, know so much about the content of the show. Who are you? Let us know. Sometimes you can be surprised. Somebody mentions
1: that they watch or they listen. And, uh, you know, I just got an email, actually. I just got a beautiful email. Hi, Rabbi Goldberg. My name is Sonso. I'm a Bachar in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Hmm. I listen behind the Bema. And I heard Alana uh, Twig. I'd love my family's coming. They want to visit her farm, Shmita. It's Man. great. You never know where, who, what, what the message is. So we'll, we'll let you know how you can share. And then we will play whatever message you leave for us. So right. uh, you can share with others. What was that? What was that? Most? So Rabbi Brody, you're back. You were on a little hiatus. Where were you? What were you up to? And what do you want to share from that experience?
2: It's just so great. It was great being back in, in Israel, you know, getting a chance to visit and see the kids. But just you just spoke about the Shemitah. You know, it, right. it's hard to drive down any of the highways in Israel without seeing these massive Karanashviyah signs which say that this field or this farm is observing Shemitah. We even went to we didn't go to hers, but we went to another one. We got to see some of the. uh the magic. Who is the we? Who'd you go with? So I was there with my wife, the the Rebitson, with Simone, and you know, baruch Hashem, we have six children, but we really traveled for the most time for most of the, most of it just with our two kids, the two younger ones, because everyone else is busy doing their thing, and and it was fun. It was fun just getting a chance to kind of kind of see see the country. It's our first forty five trips to Israel. I, I have everyone listed. One day when you make Aliyah? supposedly they ask you where, when, it, when did you go to Israel? So I have all the trips. This is the first time we've we've done a real family trip. So really, it was nice. Um, yeah. so the highlight was the farm. What was the highlight? There were so many highlights. There was so there's some. I mean, one, one of the <laughs> every day was a highlight. I mean, just driving in Israel is a highlight. For for uh, for for you know you know me, I'm not such a such a such a like, driving for me with, with, with Israelis is obviously not so simple um but uh but everything just just living israel was 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 really special as opposed to just waking up every day and trying to be on you know part of a tour or leading the tour here it's like you know what let's let, let's go to minion let's go go for a jog let's go make breakfast it's it's a different experience so amazing and did nice. you
1: get to go to one of your heroes the daf with Rebellion? Oh, that was actually my a, a, da-
2: a josh brody daf update the DAF update, so it was it was really special because I uh, did get a chance to go go uh, go see go see Ellie behind the bima, right? Literally, I was watching him from right right behind opposite his behind his bima, and it's it's fascinating. It's so I can't explain. It's it's almost like uh, you know when you when you go to when you when you go to uh, you know Disney World for the first time as a little kid and you look up at that big castle and as you get closer and closer, you realize maybe it's not as big in, in person as the dream you had. But it's so much more exciting, it's so much more powerful than than anything you ever could have imagined. The Hevershaft, the the guys, the the, the community that's built around it, and uh, it's just it's exciting. It's a you know we're actually starting now, just so just so you know, right? We spoke about this a little bit before. That uh, every day is is a little bit more momentum, but we really are trying to build up a Boca group of guys to perhaps celebrate. See them together to, to to come together weeknights and even if it's watching the same thing on the same and you know in the same room in, in right locations
1: well that's part of his magic right? right it's not just the way he gives this year he created a community around this year i think there's lessons for all of us to learn without harping on or glorifying mostly because he would like that too much uh, ellie stefanski i'm just joking he's amazing it's the cover of Ami magazine this week what he's built and what he's done but really i, I think that sort of uh, Rabbanim Jewish community institutions should stop and analyze and learn and say, right. what went right here, right? We're trying to engage people. We're trying to draw people in. We want people to feel connected. We want them to learn what's he doing right. It's a case study, right? When when in graduate schools and business school, you're, you're trying to learn in, in management school. So the best way to learn is with case study. So if you take the MDY as a case study, you could do the same, by the way, with Rav da Goldvecht and Smichas Chavar. Rav right. tapped into something incredible. He chased after me, tried to recruit me to teach it in our community. Not I'm anything special, but he was trying to spread it around and get it started. I hesitated, I avoided, I was reluctant. Right. And actually, there were guys in the community who pushed. We got it started. It's most of one of the most rewarding things that I do. Wake up early every Sunday morning. Right. You know how many guys there are at seven forty-five a.m. for an hour and fifteen minutes sheer? and then a bachina a test on it, and a CM. Again, a lot of the same things. There's community, there's camaraderie, there's a sense of accomplishment, there's continuity. So there are several case studies we could be looking at, be it Stefanski and M.D.Y., be it Revelya Goldwicht and okay. Smichat and to look at the Dafiomi as a whole, and just say, what's the next thing? How do we learn from it? And what's the next thing we can do? Someone even said
2: yesterday, or I think it was yesterday, Shir, they said, you know what, because he starts out every morning, you know, good morning, Reboisai, and then you get, ah, and then he shows little clips or videos of children doing it every single day. So someone said, imagine what that's going to sound like at the CM Hashas. Now, obviously, he hasn't been asked to speak. He hasn't been asked, you know, but everyone knows it's, it's going to happen. It's just like a light right. bulb went off. Of course, it's going to someone's going to say it. The whole hundred thousand people are going to participate. But I think one of the things that he does, which is, which is something we could all learn from, and there's many different, different, different pieces here, but is that he really encourages the participants to go out and get more people to join. So like right. the Chavre, that you activate these guys and you say, you love this. You're so into it. Bring five of your friends to the next one. Well, so there's an interesting
1: question that comes out of this and it could be a bigger question. We've discussed it before. And by the way, the 100th episode, we're looking forward to and hoping to have all the hosts back together. Um, but it is an interesting question because Stavansky himself, when he was on Behind the Bema, we spoke about he's shameless and it's not his ego. It's really about the Torah and he's willing to do anything, even appear like ego in order okay. to. Grow Torah, but but meaning a person has to be willing to do that. When you recruit and solicit and push and sponsor and send free gemaras and create a whole community and one might say a cult around it, you have to be willing to do that. And so there's always that question. You know, I, I don't think I've shared this publicly, but I'm regularly debating. Baruch Hashem, bli inarot, it's the greatest privilege of my life, aside from from being a husband, a father, a grandfather. But teaching Torah is the greatest privilege. Sharing Torah, teaching Torah. Promoting Torah, trying to inspire myself and others with Torah, and Baruch Hashem, thanks to technology, the internet, we've been able to do it. Everything that we do has grown organically. Behind the Bima, Parsha perspectives, living with Amuna, right. turned Friday into Erev Shabbos, Erev Shabbos calls. Everything that we do. So the question is, if you put a little money into it, you know, people ask, what's the marketing budget? Right. We, we've never spent one penny. We never spent one penny on a guest for Behind the Bima. We don't spend one penny on promoting behind the Bima, sponsored by the Bima, you know, getting it optimized. Or I don't even know the terms of, of how to how to grow the audience of any of these things. Maybe we should not behind the Bima, you know, but but take Shiram where we're teaching yeah. real Torah. Maybe maybe we should. But then there's that yucky, awkward feeling of, really, am I investing money in promoting myself? Is that ego? Whoever trips up, up on the shear will trip on the shear. But should we? Is it ego that's saying we want to grow the numbers, get more people reading, downloading the newsletter, reading the partial perspective write up? Yeah. You know, what's, yeah, what's Imagine, imagine
2: if like your, 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 your tefillah insights or not feel insights, sitter snippets, sitter snippets, right? Sitter snippets that you put together some form of like, like a workbook or something. Right. And, and, and you say to everyone that's participating, get this in the hands of 10 people. You know, so it's 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 not about you. It's about the the Torah, like like this this past week when you were talking about Shimon Asrei, right? And you're talking about t- the three steps back and the three steps forward, and and the three the, the three people in in, in 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 Jewish history that 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 that's supposed to remind us of, and you know, Va'yigash. You, you don't realize. I mean, you do realize, but maybe you don't. You, you realize that that changes the, the people that are listening. It changes right. their davening forever. So, it, you know, it's interesting you raised
1: that. So first yeah. of all, shameless plug. We just started the Amida, the introduction. That's right. There are almost uh, 400 snippets, but you can go on this and you can get it delivered right on WhatsApp. You could listen on a podcast player, but you right. could sign up. Uh, Rabbi Goberg.org slash sitter to these, Rabbi slash sitter. But it's a good question you raise, right? Meaning you put out a book, you put out a Safer. So the publisher is spending marketing money. So the biggest names we know, the people we admire incredibly, let's take Rabbi Friend. We right. admire, nobody thinks he's a bad guy even the least. Rabbi Fran is incredibly modest. He's an un-of, he's a tamachacham, he's a tzaddik. Right. But, but Art Scroll's taking out ads in newspapers selling Rabbi Fran on the Parsha, Rabbi right. Fran's jubadrushes. And nobody's like, wow, he's promoting himself. He lets he, his book be, be sold. But yet, if somebody would say, we'll take that same marketing money and instead of putting it in a newspaper, we'll use the technology online to get people to read Rabbi Fran's weekly partial thing on the website. Then you might be like, really? you know? So maybe this is only in my head. Maybe I got to get over this. I don't
2: know. Yeah. I think there's <laughs> a lot of people that could benefit from your Torah. No, I'm, I was thinking out loud. Well, don't also. make it about me. I'm Let's saying, they benefit, And They large. just don't know. It's, it's different if someone says, listen, I gave it a shot. It wasn't for me. It's another thing to say, there's a lot of people out there that may be interested if you just put it in front of them. They just know about it. If I
1: live with this and I'll tell you that I've spoken to a lot of people that I admire and respect who are struggling with this question, you know, without, without violating it with confidence, but a previous behind the beam of guest, Charlie Harari, right. my cousin David Beshevkin, or others and say, what do you say? Like, look, I put it out there and then it should just grow organically. Whoever Hashem wants to fall on it trip on it and discover it. And when do you say, no, the same way that like you put out a flyer, you promote a sheer and that's not about you. We are in the business of drawing people closer to Hashem's Torah inspiring teaching so right. if the work's already going in to do a six minute snippet every day and and my amida is growing and your davening is growing not because of me it's the torah of the other people so then yeah let, let's try to have as many people as possible grow at six minutes Experience a day in Torah. Time. so i don't right. know I'm, I'm still struggle all the time with this i'm not over that hump aside from the fact that i don't know where the money's coming from to market it's not exactly in a shul budget um and i don't know who it's fair to ask to to have that money but it's a, it's, a, it's a question. We have a pleasure, pleasure this evening. We're going to bring on Dan Grunfeld in a moment. But first of all, buddy, you want to talk about that shirt? Is this your Garth okay. Brooks uh, invitation? What's going on it's, here today?
2: It's not Garth Brooks. Let me, let me tell you something. I, I, was at, I was in a meeting this afternoon with some of my uh, incredible friends from Project Inspire. These guys are serious guys. These guys are like the best in, in the outreach world. I was like, you know what? Do I come in? Do I, do I go with the classic white shirt, put on the nice suit pants? Go with this new look, the black jeans, the black shirt. When I say new, it's very new. You've, you've seen it for the last two days. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what? I'm going all in on this look. <laughs> they
1: didn't say anything, but in the Kira world, you can go all in on that look because, right. it's like, you know, you're it's trying sick. to relate and be and there's yeah. nothing wrong with the look, not to criticize, judge. There's nothing wrong with any look. Feel free to be yourself, but right. you can definitely go uh, You and can go all it. in on it. One of the interesting things, just a little behind the Bima trivia as we approach the 100th episode will be a fun thing for someone to track what rabbi brody wore on every episode because one thing i can tell you i wore on every episode this big yarmulke a white shirt and a tie but do you remember the days of a brody like when we had Aaron cutler you were with a suit and a black hat the black then hat, we right? had someone from israel wearing like a white kippah right. and we like you used to like a chameleon like a chameleon you would adapt adapt, you each episode right so you yeah. never know what you're gonna find you're the, the good old days the good old days. Well, Dan Grunfeld, father, incredible Ernie Grunfeld, the great New York Nick player, executive announcers, grandmother, amazing Holocaust survivor. Dan, in his own right, tremendous, uh, beautiful life story. And uh, I learned that, that the Grunfelds are actually mishpocha, they're cousins of a member of ours, Bob Strauss, our <laughs> beloved, dear friend, Bob Strauss, a member here at BRS, is a cousin of Grunfeld. I think Bob's father and Ernie Grunfeld's father, or Bob and Ernie Grunfeld's father were first cousins. But uh, a cousin, Mishpacha, there you have it. Awesome. But Dan's written a great book, By the Grace of the Game. Fascinating. If, this interview, this conversation, you don't have to have heard of basketball. Frankly, Rabbi Brody doesn't even know how to play basketball. You don't have to know or care about sports. You just have to care about life and the Jewish people and our history and our destiny. So we are very excited to be able to welcome Dan Grunfeld. We have the great pleasure of being joined by Dan Grunfeld, uh, author of By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, The Basketball Legacy, and An Unprecedented American Dream. Really a fantastic read, a stimulating read, and a read that's, that's thought-provoking, not only Dan, for your life, but it's sort of a mirror that we hold up to our lives about our family narrative, our background, our challenges, where we have need to persevere. And so we're really grateful for a fantastic, fantastic book. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for saying that.
1: So we got a lot to unpack here. There's so much in that book and so much to talk about. Uh, Dan, you are a two-time academic All-American at Stanford, uh, played eight professional seasons, top leagues around the world. We'll get to Germany, Spain, four in Israel, short stint in the NBA. Uh, MBA now you're you're working in, in Silicon Valley, I believe. You're working in high tech. Uh, you've been an author and published in Sports Illustrated, Huffington Post, Jerusalem Post, and and so much else. So we could talk for hours, but we're going to try to narrow it in and sort of follow the outline that you do in the book where you broke it up into three chapters and and more than three chapters, but three um, vantage points and you weave them together. And that is your grandmother, your father, and of course you, but we're going to go out of order. And with your permission, we're going to start with your dad. So I I grew up in the New York area. Um, You know, anyone who who followed the Knicks, Knicks fan knew your dad's name, obviously a player, an exec accomplished, Um, but they don't know. I didn't know your dad's story. Uh, It doesn't seem like he wore that on his sleeve or spoke about it, didn't come up in in interviews. You say in the book that your father is the only player in NBA history whose parents were were Holocaust survivors. And his own story is fascinating. Born in Romania, eight years old, immigrated to the United States, and learns to play basketball in Queens. And he goes from this immigrant who doesn't speak English to 10 years later being a gold medalist and one of the most famous names in, in the NBA and NBA history. So how did that happen? How did your dad discover the basketball court, and what did the basketball court do for him?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, my book is called By the Grace of the Game, right? And the details you just mentioned kind of explain why. You know, my dad came to this country, like you said, he spoke fluent Hungarian, Romanian, and Italian, didn't speak a word of English. Uh, he was made fun of by kids in New York City, right, for not speaking the language, for being a fish out of water. My dad had an older brother, when they got to the United States and what my dad called my uncle in their native language, Hungarian translates to English as my King. You know, mm-hmm. that's how much my dad revered and looked up to his older brother. And my uncle was diagnosed with leukemia not long after arriving in the United States and he passed away within a year. And so and that was your the, name, right. Is
1: that your, your middle name? Yes. Are you named after? I, my
0: middle name is after my uncle. And as you know, from my book, I carry that with me, that history, you know, I take it very seriously. It's an obligation that I have to the past, but you know, that's just a crushing loss for my family. And so my dad did what all the other kids in New York city were doing. As he describes it, he went to the local park to play hoops, you know, and I think he was, you know, the game moved him away from so much tragedy, right? Not only losing so much family in the Holocaust, but also losing his brother. And so the game of basketball really appeared and shined its light on him when he needed it. And as you said, you know, he wasn't long before he became an all American was an Olympian, you know, and my grandparents who both survived the Holocaust got to be there in attendance and watch him become a gold medalist for the United States. So really, uh, you know, surreal trajectory. And that's why I wrote the book.
1: That is incredible. And basketball in many ways is, it's not just an escape in an unhealthy sense, as many substances are, it's a healthy escape, right? Because, you know, as somebody who who likes to, I never obviously played professionally or amateur sports, but who enjoys playing sport, you know, with all the stress and pressure you have, not yet. Exactly. I'm (laughs) waiting for the senior tour with all the pressure (laughs) and stress you have in life. You know, the second you're on a court or you're competing, you can't be thinking of anything else. You have to be focused on that ball or your opponent or defense or whatever game you're playing. So, you know, you described coming and being an immigrant and living under the shadow of the Holocaust and with all that loss and his brother, that basketball becomes that escape, but you're sinking yourself into something It's healthy, physically, mentally competitive. It's, it's, it's bringing out good things in you. So do you think that basketball played that role for you too? Or, you know, do you have anything to say about sports in general as a healthy outlet?
0: absolutely it's an incredible outlet right it's it's a great sense of community and that's what it was for my dad right he he made friends he learned the language and basketball you know language is a theme throughout the book right because my dad came to america not speaking the language but then he found basketball and that ball is a universal language doesn't care what country you come from what language you speak what color your skin is it brings people together and so he's the ultimate example of that it, it happened in my life as well you know i have lifelong friends who who that that ball that game connected me with and so and like you said you know it's healthy it's active it's stimulating it's competitive it's fun you know so for all those reasons sports basketball but sports in general it's just a great unifier right and there are so many things in the world now that you know we see people being teared, torn apart sports brings you together you know and certainly basketball has been that force for my family and it's that force for people around the world so i i can't underestimate the power of sports to change lives, to bring people together.
1: And it's healthy. Rabbi Brody, we'll explain to you what basketball is later, how it works. I appreciate it. Well, I'd that. be happy to do that. I'll do a full <laughs> tutorial.
0: You'll, you'll like it. It's a good game. They'll need it. They'll need <laughs> it.
2: Listen, I just need a few more feet. You know, that's the uh, little challenged on the uh, vertical <laughs> like, side. It, it, I, I always he...
0: tell people, you don't need to be tall, but it helps. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> did he,
2: did he have to break into that community or or did they welcome him into that community?
0: I think both. You know, I think that he he was, he had to find his way. Uh, And he always says, you know, especially in the neighborhood that he grew up in once he came to the United States, Forest Hills, Queens, you know, if you could play ball in the neighborhood, that's how you got respect, you know, and that's how you made friends. So Mm -hmm. I could look at him and say, well, you must've made a lot of friends because, you know, sometimes things just click. And I think, I don't think he would have flown so far so fast had he not been moving away from all that tragedy. But, It just was a great fit for him. He loved the game. He was competitive. You know, my grandparents, Holocaust survivors who had this, this maniacal work ethic, you know, he learned that from them, this toughness, this discipline. And so it, it took him a while to find his footing, but once he did, he was embraced, you know, he, he became a legend in the neighborhood, you know, but at first people made fun of him, you know? So again, by the grace of the game, you know, it it didn't take him long until he was the one kind of you know, controlling the park, the, the park that, you know, he used to kind of have trouble fitting in at.
1: Right. And here he was with his college career, University of Tennessee, drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks, 77, played for the Kansas City Kings, ultimately the New York Knicks. I think he's most associated or synonymous mm-hmm. with the New York Knicks, managed teams, executives, some radio broadcasting. Um, He wore number 18, symbolism of wearing the number 18.
0: Uh, absolutely. Of course. Wow. I mean, we know what that means in Judaism, right? That's high and my dad is the only Jewish player to ever wear number 18 for the Knicks. He's the, as you said, the only NBA player's parents are Holocaust survivors. And so, yeah, he picked that number 18 very intentionally.
1: And you had a line in the book. You said, quote, a yeshiva in Queens once denied him admission for not speaking English. And now he was being recruited to announce games on New York radio for the beloved Knicks. So yeshiva really didn't let him in because he didn't uh, know the language well enough?
0: Solomon Schechter in the Bronx. Yeah. So my, you know, when they came to the United States, that's what my grandparents knew, right? My, there were Orthodox Jews in Europe. And so they wanted him to go to a yeshiva and he, you know, he went and they interviewed him, whatever that means, but he couldn't speak the language and say, you know, Mm. we can't let your kid in. So he went to PS 101 in Queens, you know, because the, the yeshiva in the Bronx wouldn't let him in. And then he eventually, you know, found the game, became a New York Knicks player, and then after he retired, the Knicks hired him ultimately to announce games on the radio in English, right. of course, because, you know, he spoke perfect English.
1: Tremendous irony. So the great Ernie Grunfeld. So he didn't he didn't speak about it. it was that conscious decision that he wasn't going to be sort of, you know, the 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 Jew on the court or this survivor or child of survivors of the Holocaust? Did he suppress that intentionally? Was it not? sort of a safe space to be able to share that part of who he was, or was it just incidental that here he was focused on competing on basketball, on excelling, on on growing professionally? Why do you think he didn't speak about it more?
0: I think that the basketball courts, it's a great equalizer, right? Everyone has a background. Everyone has a story. There are always things that push you that motivate you. And once you're on the, between those lines, you know, you, you play the game. And I think that that's how he always approached it. I think, Off the court because he was such a public figure there were more opportunities to talk about it but i think and as you know from reading the book basketballs wins and losses but this story is life and death you know these are really hard themes really hard things you know he was born from the ashes of the holocaust essentially you know fled his homeland under duress lost his brother and then here came you know basketball came around and, and everything changed and so You know, I talk a lot in my book about privilege and I'm privileged for a lot of different reasons. One of those reasons that I have a generation of separation from all that tragedy and trauma. So I can look back on it, reflect upon it, learn from it. He never really had that luxury.
1: Like a lot of survivors didn't talk about it. And I guess, you know, even as an immigrant, since he was an extension of that survivor and it made sense, he didn't uh, he didn't speak about it. Rob Brody, you want to jump in? Yeah, I'm just
2: wondering, you know, first of all, you know, you could talk about subliminally or, or if it was very overt, the 18. But I know that if I knew that there was a Jewish player wearing an 18, you know, that's like a yarmulke. I mean, you've got something on there and it's just exciting. I know that's that's our that's our code word. You know, that's our that's our guy on the court. Did he go around and speak and inspire kids just to because they were so excited that there was another, you know, Lanceman There was someone someone from the from the from the tribe that was that was on a on a team like that.
0: He did. He did. He was, you know, active in the community. I know he spoke internationally. I know he, when he was playing for the Knicks, he did a basketball clinic for kids in Budapest in Hun- in Hungarian. You know, they weren't all Jewish kids, but he's, it certainly mattered to him. I have had people since the book came out write to me that, oh, your dad came to the JCC in Knoxville when he was playing for Tennessee. You know, I didn't know wow. that. Those aren't, Those aren't things that he talks about. But I think behind the scenes, he, he did things like that. I mean, obviously, just making that decision to wear 18, right? It, yeah. His history matters to him. His, his faith and culture matter to him. And so he he walked that walk.
1: Are you are you more proud of your dad's accomplishments on the court or off the court? Which one do, do you think is more impressive?
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm enormously proud of both. You know, I think that what he did as a player is remarkable. I mean, he was a legend in high school, a legend in college. Had such a strong NBA career. And then you look at his career as an executive, right? He was 30 years as a general manager. And as you know from the story, to have come to the United States with nothing, son of Holocaust survivors not speaking the language, and then not only to be such a tremendous athlete, but then a tremendous executive, right? And that's that's a that's a businessman. That's a leader. And uh, you know, my dad always he has amazing instincts for how to manage, how to lead, how to deal with people, of course, knows the game of basketball so well. And I'm a very proud son. You know, both both of those both of those areas of his life, I, I couldn't be more proud of the success he's had. Have,
2: have have they been back? Have they been back to Europe to to visit the camps and 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 see their old community?
0: They being my grandparents. Yeah. So my grandparents have been back to Romania to their village that they fled. But you know, they fled as refugees. It wasn't happy. You know, they were more than a decade under communism there, and so it wasn't a happy trip you know, and uh, my dad has not been back to Romania since they fled. And, you know, my dad was he was pat down by the communists and and screamed out by the communists as he boarded a train to to leave his homeland. Right. And so, again, that wasn't a happy departure either. He's certainly been to Europe. He's been all over the world with basketball, but but not back to Romania.
2: Have you been on the March of the Living or a program like that where they take you back to the camps and
0: I haven't visited the camps. You know, yeah. I've been also around the world and I visited Holocaust memorials in different countries around the world, but I haven't visited the camps. I think, you know, the trip that I really need to make is to Budapest because that's yeah. where my grandmother survived the Holocaust. That's where Raul Wallenberg saved her life right. twice. She was in the ghetto there, as you know. And so I will make the trip to Budapest. I will visit those sites. I will visit Auschwitz one day. That'll be very hard. You know, that's where all of my dad's grandparents were killed. Wow. That's where the majority of my you know, my grandmother's family and my grandfather's family were killed. And so uh, that's going to be a hard trip, but an important one.
1: Robert Brody's led uh, countless trips of teens. How many times have you gone? 14 Bye-bye? trips. Yeah, 14 wow. times. I've been there four or five times. Recently led a trip a few summers ago with members of our synagogue before Corona, about 40 adults. Many of them were second generation. And, you know, simultaneous to living the pain of walking through those same camps and those hallowed grounds where they lost loved ones and and reciting the the memorials and saying the Kaddish, so powerful. On the one hand, it's it's so raw and it rips open scars and scabs. There's pain, but there's also the sense of triumph. Like here we are and we're thriving and there's a state of Israel and there are Jewish families and Jewish continuity and Hitler and the Nazis are gone. They're a distant memory and here we are. It's really something very, very powerful. And we actually are planning, my wife's um, grandparents were from Hungary And uh, we're we're planning, please God, you know, at some point when the time will be right, a follow-up trip open not only to the people who came with us to Poland, but also to continue to see that story as it played out later, but in in Hungary as well. But I want to, Dan, I want to ask you about ESPN 30 for 30, Bernard King and your dad, Ernie Grunfeld. Talk about Bernard King, if you will, that relationship here. You have two very different, diverse people, diverse backgrounds. You wouldn't necessarily land them in the same 30 for 30 episode, if not knowing that relationship that they had, what did that relationship mean to your dad early in his career? And what does Bernard King mean to you even today?
0: You know, we, we talked about the game of basketball as a unifier. And my dad and Bernard are such a great example of that, right? They're from the same city, but they're from very different places. You know, Bernard was from the projects in Brooklyn. My dad was from this, the working class immigrant neighborhood in Queens. And they went down to Knoxville, Tennessee, and the basketball brought them together and they, Became legends in Tennessee separately and together. You know, they were called the Ernie and Bernie Show, one of the greatest duos in college basketball history. You know, I write about it in the book and they documented in the 30 for 30 on ESPN called Bernie and Ernie. It's a very special story. And they also played in the NBA together, you know, for the Knicks. And so Bernard lived up the street from us. And so I would come home from school and see Bernard there. I can even tell you that today when I was talking to my dad, I, we were just chatting and he said, Oh, yeah, I talked to Bernard today. And so that's that's how close they are. This is all those years later, and uh, they talk every month. You know, Bernard, I call him Uncle B. You know, he texted me a month or two ago, just telling me he was so proud of me for this book and the story it tells. And so, I think it's a very special story, and it also is symbolic of what we've been talking about about the power of basketball and sports to build bridges, to heal wounds for people individually. Right? Both those guys had complicated histories, but the game was a salve for both of them. And then it also united them, but not only at the time for, for decades, right? Our families are very close. As I mentioned, Bernard and I are very close and it's really, it's, it's a beautiful relationship and we all have the game of basketball to thank for it.
1: That's amazing. So w- one more question on your dad before we turn and it's it's a really behind the beam question. So you can take a pass if you want. Um, it's hard to grow up in the in, in the shadow of a, of a celebrity, of somebody larger than life, of an accomplished athlete executive on every stage, on, on the big stage of the hardwood of New York, and then back in the office and business, in every arena he's excelled. Is it hard to grow up in such a shadow? Does it create certain expectations for yourself, or others put on you? Do you measure yourself against having such a dad? Is that a complicated childhood? And, and I share that not to get too personal with you, but also for everyone to listen and to learn, for other people, who maybe their parents aren't as famous, but in their own way struggled to figure out where they fit in.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking if I'm passing on a question, it's gotta be really, really, really deep. Cause you read my book, right? I'm very honest, very open, and uh I'll be that way here too. There are incredible perks growing up with, with that kind of background. You know, we we did really fun things, always going to Nick practices and Nick playoff games and NBA All-Star games and not only are they cool experiences but they're really meaningful to to do as a family right so it brought our family really close together it brought me very close to my dad but there there are drawbacks too and there are things that are really hard about it and i'm very honest about it in the book all the pressure you know i i always felt that people were assuming things about me and that you know any success i had on the basketball court i didn't earn right it was given and Listen, and I own my privilege and the, and the opportunities that I did have. And those things, it's 100% true. But at the same time, between the lines on the basketball court, you really do have to earn your keep. And I think it really put a chip on my shoulder to to outwork people, not only on the court, but off the court. And so you mentioned I was a two-time academic All-American at Stanford, which, of course, I'm very proud of. But that happened. You know, there was a lot of elbow grease, a lot of hard work that made that happen. I think part of it was that kind of – that determination and that motivation I got from feeling judged and feeling the pressure to kind of live up to to what people thought I should be because of who my dad was.
1: It must be complicated, but you're accomplished in your own right. And the truth is, no matter who your dad is, that doesn't make the ball go in the basket, right? You you still have to get it in there.
0: (laughs) You got to put the ball. Yeah. If you're playing hoops again, like ball don't lie, like between the lines, you have to earn your keep, you know, and that's what I always tried to do.
1: So let's talk about your grandmother, who's really the the hero of the book in many ways. And as impressive, your dad, you, um, each a story of perseverance in its own right. You point this out uh, in the book, you know, pale, so to say, in comparison to to her life story, what she endured and the precedent and, and what she passed on to you, the power of perseverance. So, you know, share with our, our listeners a little bit about that. That story, she lost, I know, five siblings, a total of 70 family members, which is unimaginable. She grew up in a large Orthodox family in rural Romanian village near the Hungarian border. Did, did I read correctly with connections to Satmer? Was she connected even to, to Satmer in, in her youth? And, and here the Nazis come in and she's 18 years old and it changes her life. She's saved by Ru Wallenberg. So give us a little, a little synopsis of, of her story so we could talk a little bit more about her.
0: Absolutely. Uh, As you said, my, you know, my dad was this big basketball star and I had a nice career, but my grandmother is the star of our family. She's certainly the star of this story. She is not only our hero, she's a hero. You know, she risked her life to save others during the Holocaust. My family's from Satmar. That's where my dad is born and raised. And so, you know, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, you know, who's very famous from, you know, leaving Romania, coming to Brooklyn. He blessed my grandmother in her childhood kitchen, uh, I think in the wow. 1920s, <laughs> you know, before maybe the early 30s, b- before the, the war. And so, wow, yeah, my dad is from Sadmar. My grandmother, you know, is from a village very, very close to Sadmar on the, uh, in Transylvania, on the border of Romania and Hungary. Grew up in a happy home, 10 siblings, including her, two loving parents, you know, beautiful Orthodox home. And I write with, in pretty vivid detail about what her childhood was like, because we know the numbers of the Holocaust, right? But these weren't just numbers, they were people. You know, they were my grandmother's loved ones. And, you know, my grandmother's 97. She lives in the Bay Area. I just spent a week with her. She's doing incredibly well. Mm, Amazing. You know, I always tell, when I talk to groups of youngsters about this book, we learn about the Holocaust in history, in history class, but it's really important to know that it wasn't that long ago and it wasn't that far away. You know, and so I wanted to recreate that in the book and let them know, like, these were people, you know, these were human beings just like us. And so, you know, my grandmother had a chance to survive on the run during the war because she happened to be visiting an older sister in Budapest when the Nazis invaded. Uh, She was able to obtain a Schutz pass from Raul Wallenberg. That's when she risked her life. She got 17 passes for other people. Uh, She was eventually caught and put in the Budapest ghetto and Narrowly avoided a massacre at the end of the war, and again, the book goes into great detail about what happened in the ghetto and how she survived. But it took her 40 years to learn that it was Wallenberg uh, who saved her a second time. Wow. So you know, he's one of the greatest heroes of the, of the war, and the Holocaust Museum in D.C. is on Raul Wallenberg Way. And you know, my grandmother is is one of the lucky ones who who was saved by him. And so we we wouldn't be having this conversation if not for Wallenberg. But uh, yeah, like you said. there were five siblings, uh, there were 10 total siblings, five of them were killed in the Holocaust, both of my grandmother's parents as well. Did
1: she talk about it when you were growing up? Did you know about it? Or was this process of the book really getting into it with her?
0: She talked about it. Yeah, you know, it's often a binary with Holocaust survivors, either they don't want to talk about it, or they feel an obligation. And my grandmother was in the latter camp. You know, she would always tell stories about her father who was, you know, they were so close. And My son is named after my great grandfather. You know, my great grandfather was Solomon and my firstborn son is Solomon. And Mm. my grandma would always talk about him and, you know, talk about what happened in the war, but in an age appropriate way. So when I was seven and 10 years old, you know, she would share the details that were appropriate. But as I got older and, you know, I went to Stanford as an an undergrad and my grandmother lives 25 minutes from campus. So she came to every single home game I played. I remember sitting at her kitchen table during the summer with a notebook and just asking her questions. I was just always interested. You know, I wanted to know the specifics about what happened. And she has an incredible memory even to this day. Like, and that's why you've read the book. Like, there's a lot of texture. There's really rich, vivid detail. It's because of my grandmother. What, what she remembers and what she's willing to recount is just, it's incredible. And it, it really contributed to me telling a really deep and meaningful story. But, you know, she, uh, I, I'm lucky that she's always communicated about what happened.
2: Have you ever ever met the Satmar Hasidim? Have you, have you gone back to try and, 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 and engage them as a, as a Satmar Hasid yourself?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I I haven't formally, when I played professionally in Israel, some of my professional basketball, some of my Israeli teammates would make, you know, mention because there are different parts of the wardrobe that signify where you're from. And so there would be, there would be some, some Satmar Hasidim that, uh, would be pointed out to me, but I've never made any formal attempt to connect with the community.
2: Oh, they're going to attempt now.
0: (laughs) Hey, man, listen, we, we don't shy away from our past. It's all in the book. This is where my dad was born and raised, right? He, he was raised in Satmar. That, you know, that's that's who knows, who knows
1: if it's the, the brach the blessing of the Satmar Rebbe in Satmar maybe that set your dad on his, uh, on his illustrious career. Who knows?
0: It could be. And, and listen, another part of the book is, you know, I mentioned my uncle, you know, my uncle got sick and passed. And when, uh, you know, my grandmother of course was so heartbroken when my uncle got the diagnosis through a mutual friend, she reached out to Rabbi Teitelbaum and she said, Hey, this is what's happening to my son. What can you do anything to help? And he said, I'm so sorry. There's nothing that I can do, you know, but, but so he she not only met him in her childhood home before the wow. war, she reconnected with him in New York City to try to help when my uncle was was terminally ill.
1: You know how many, you know how many Jewish Knicks fans probably never would dream in a million years the connection between Ernie Grunfeld and the <laughs> Satmarebbe Rabyolish? Like that, that in itself is wild.
0: So <laughs> I wrote the book. You know, I always grew up saying, Man, this is this is a wild big story and I think it's a relatable one yeah. that needs to be told. 100%, Breaking 100%. news. 100. <laughs> so yeah. your
1: grandmother, your grandmother remembers all all these vivid details. Obviously, life changed for survivors. Um, you know, she after the war there, and then ultimately migrating and coming here. Um, anything you could share with us about your grandmother's connection, continued connection to Judaism, to faith, to Israel? She she grew up in that Satmar background and had that observant. Uh, upbringing. Is there a holiday? Is there uh, her favorite Hungarian foods? Is there part of her faith, her relationship with God? I'm sure as complicated as it is for so many survivors, anything to share about your grandmother in terms of her faith and holidays and the like?
0: Yeah. Well, listen, the food is a huge part of my family. It's a huge part of our relationship. And I write so much about her food in the book. It's, she happens to be the best cook in the world, but it's also a vessel of love. You know, the meals that she cooks for me to this day, I was just with her last week eating this food. You know, they're the meals that her mom made for their family before the majority of them were killed in sure. Auschwitz, right? What's your, so, listen, my, I
1: told you my wife's grandparents are Hungarian. So, I know, what's your favorite Hungarian food? What's your favorite?
0: For my, it's got to be rantatouche. Uh, you know, that's like the breaded chicken. Uh, it's like schnitzel, but whatever my grandma does to it, it's magic. You know, <laughs> she makes delicious vina you know, eggplant dishes, uh, so many soups, medzlavesh, sour cherry soup. Uh, right. Listen, I, I'm, I love my grandmother's food, you know, so much. It's my favorite cuisine. Uh, she's still like, you know, Judaism is such a huge part of her life. You know, the, the faith, the community, uh, and like you said, with Holocaust survivors, it's complicated, but nonetheless, the culture, the community, it, it's still, still very strong presence in her life. You know, she she, she's fasted, I think she'll say 87 straight years on Yom Kippur. Wow. Wow. You know, so she, she's still fast to this day. You know, she fast on Yom Kippur. So uh, yeah, it's still, still a big part of who she is.
1: Please God, for many, many more years. You, you share in the book, hold on, Rabbi. we'll get to you in one second, but you share in a very moving section about when she went home in January 45 to her ransacked childhood home and she found something that you now have
0: I have it with me. I actually, you know, I had just traveled from California to the East Coast and I brought it with me. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, the house was looted and my great grandfather, may he rest in peace, was a successful landowner. You know, they had crops and they had animals and all these things and everything was gone after the war. The house was empty, completely looted. And in the back of one of the drawers in the kitchen, my grandmother found an old metallic serving spoon that my great grandmother used to serve milk, right? Cause it was a kosher house. So it was a milk spoon and it was really all my grandma had left. And so she mm-hmm. grabbed it, you know, she held it to her heart and she kept it for 75 years. She gifted it to me not long ago. And then I write in the book, I keep it in my bedside drawer near where I sleep. And it's true, right? It's it's talk about priceless. I mean, it it, it really is. It, it's, it's a spoon. It's a metallic serving spoon, mm-hmm. but the meaning behind that is so profound.
2: Huge. Wow. Just talking about the meaning behind something, you know, I'm wondering your grandmother when she sees your dad making the New York Knicks and now he's on TV and he's all over the place, obviously a massive amount of pride. Now you make at some point you're you're playing for the state of Israel on different teams. What's bigger to her? You know, it's the <laughs> Knicks, which is great. It's America. But yeah, you, know, you got you got Israel. You know, what's
0: how? Do, yeah. How do they, I don't think she compares the two. I just think she celebrates them both. And I think they're both really special trajectories. I mean, for my dad, what he did, it just came out of nowhere for my grandparents. And, you know, I write about it in the book where they didn't even see him play basketball until he was a junior in high school. He was already one of the best players in New York City. They knew he was playing basketball a lot, but they had opened up a fabric store in the Bronx and they were working six, seven days a week to build a life, right? These are Holocaust survivors, immigrants in New York City. And so once they found out what was happening you know my grandfather barely missed the game but they just didn't know and then they blinked their eyes and he's just this phenomenon this sensation he's on the cover of sports illustrated he's an olympic gold medalist and so that that was just kind of this unthinkable thing that happened because of basketball and again by the grace of the game you know and then for me i grew up so differently i I, my dad was the player for the knicks when i was born he was the general manager of the knicks growing up and so basketball was always in my plans, right? It didn't come out of nowhere, it was everywhere for me. But at the same time, I, I fulfilled my my childhood dream of playing at Stanford. I had a successful professional career and then to finish my career in Israel, to play for the team in Jerusalem, right? That that was all very cool, very meaningful and special too. So I don't wow. think my grandmother would ever measure one against the other. I just think she would celebrate both of them.
1: That is, that that story, that that Amazing. circle that you just completed, it, it is an amazing circle. From your mom running in Budapest, her life being saved, losing seventy family members, struggling and fighting to survive. To fast forward, aside from having a celebrated son, a grandson play for the state of Israel. Right. What a <laughs> what a vindication! What a triumph! What a story!
2: No pressure yeah. on your kids.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have two sons, Dan. What 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 happens if it turns out they're not athletic? How are you well, gonna deal it. with that?
0: whatever they want to do you know and, and honestly my parents never forced basketball on me and i won't do it to my boys uh, at all but listen again this is why i wrote the book and i remember before my games in israel right Hatikva would play and i would always get chills because basketball is bigger than just a game for us because of what it did because of the future and enabled and and the thing the, the wounds that it helped heal you know so for all those reasons the game has just been so instrumental and. and in our lives. And again, I'm, I'm so proud to share the story through this book because it's one that, that has needed to been told.
1: Can, can you talk to us about the process of writing the book? And I don't mean, you know, did you sit down and how many words a day did you write? I mean, did you hesitate? Maybe your grandmother, maybe it would really open up wounds. Maybe it would be hard for her to have these conversations. Maybe putting this all out there for your whole family and for her in particular, you know, is private. So can you talk about were you concerned or worried? Did you hesitate? And how did you overcome that? Why did you decide nonetheless to publish it? And and to extrapolate out a little bit bigger, how important is it for people to know their own family narrative? How important is it for everybody to take a deep dive into where you come from, and to take the time to research and find the stories. And maybe not all of us are going to publish the book or do the interviews that you've been doing. But maybe for all of us, there's an enormous amount to gain from doing that deep dive into our own family background.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. And so, you know, my book has really resonated. It's done well and it's, it's moved people. And I think the reason is, is because it's truly something that's produced from the heart. You know, this is a story that, you know, sometimes stories just ha- you have to tell them. So when you say like th- there wasn't much of a decision because it was something that I had to get out. And I think that's why the book has done as well as it's done. And the story has resonated in the way it has because it's told from a very authentic place. And so I never said to my grandmother or my dad, I'm going to write our story. What I said to them is I wrote our story. Mm-hmm. So I did a year and a half of research. I inter- I talked to them every day. I recorded those conversations. I transcribed them. I didn't exactly tell them what I had in mind. I said, you know, I want to memorialize their history. I have a project, but I think I needed to create some space for them to be very open and honest, but also for me to kind of process this history. And so I did the research, I wrote the book. I was working on it for years before I had a a first draft done where I was able to tell them I wrote it, you know, and then the decision-making started coming in. And I said, you know, are you comfortable? And uh, they were, they were supportive. It's very hard for both of them, particularly for my dad you know, because he's basketball has taken him away from this history. But I think they both very clearly identified that this is an important story, not only for our family, but kind of a little bit more broadly. And so they were 100 percent supportive. Um, And to the second part of your question, I always, you know, when I talk to groups, I encourage people, especially younger people, know your history. You don't have to write it. Right. I, I love to write. So I wrote a book. Just know it. You know, ask your grandparents, ask your parents, particularly for the Jewish people. We, you know, we share this history, right? Whether it's the Holocaust or what we've all been through these trials and tribulations. We've all experienced anti-Semitism. We all know what, you know, these journeys are like. And so I 100% think it's super important to, to know it. That's the first part of it. Know where you come from. Be proud of where you come from. Be proud of who you are. Then if you like, if you like to write, if you like to make documentary films, go for it, right? Definitely go for it. But first and foremost, just know it.
1: Yeah, there's research that actually shows that what gives the um, strength and the the capacity for perseverance is knowing your family narrative. And what's interesting about the research, I think it was done out of Duke, is that it's not just if you know that you have a wonderful family narrative, that doesn't make you as strong as – and if you know that you have a terrible one, that also – the most powerful family narrative to be exposed to or aware of that helps you the most – Is what they call the oscillating family narrative, which yours is, right? The downs and the ups, the 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 sacrifice, the struggle, and the perseverance and the triumph. And if you know that that's in your background and it's in your DNA. Then it gives, and that's really the theme of the book: is is that oscillating family narrative and and where you're at and what a great gift that you're giving your sons that you've done that hard work and that they just have to read; they don't have to do the research, but they'll know where they where they come from. Is there talk about taking this book to the next level, maybe producing a movie or maybe something bigger about your dad's story, your grandmother's story, your story?
0: Yeah, we are. We're in conversations right now to do it for movies and you know or a movie, and which is amazing, you know. And I this is not a commercial endeavor for me, as I just told you, I just wrote it. You know, and actually how books like this usually happen is you you have an idea, you put a proposal together, then with that proposal, you get an agent, then the agent sells that idea to a publisher, then you write it, you know, that that's the normal process. I, I worked with a professor at Stanford, a writing professor, and we talked about the story and he could sense how much it meant to me. And he was like, you know what? You can write, and this means the world to you, write your book and figure it all out later. So. I did it backwards. I just wrote the book and mm-hmm. then I got an agent and then we got a publisher. And so this was, you know, I didn't write it to to do anything other than just tell a really important story. And so now that we're having these big conversations about movies and different things, it, it's incredible. And I just want as many people as possible to be exposed to this story, because I always say there's a lot of darkness in the story, but there's much more light. For you sure know, as you would. said, there's there's tragedy, but there's more triumph.
1: One more question about your grandmother before we get to your life, which we've been talking about all along. Um, in your life, you know, you, you played, obviously, college in America, a short stint with the New York Knicks, uh, ultimately Spain, Israel, but you made a stop in Germany. Mm. What was that like, given the conversation we just had about Hungary and surviving and Auschwitz and the Holocaust and so much of who you are shaped by the cloud of the Holocaust? Um, what was it like? Telling your grandmother that you were going to play in Germany and what was it like playing in Germany?
0: I write in my book, I'm likely the only professional basketball player who had to call his grandmother to ask permission to sign his first contract. And that's true. My agent called me, said, Hey, got a great opportunity for you to start your, your career. You know, perfect, perfect team, perfect league. I said, Great. You know, where am I going? He said, First League Germany. And as soon as I heard Germany, I really think i interrupted him. i said hey i have to call you back yeah you know and i called my grandmother right away and oh. just told her you know that I, I had a chance to start my pro career but it's in germany and you know i'll never forget what she said to me she said sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers mm-hmm. you know and that's what people have done to jews over history they've made assumptions about us they've blamed us she said you can't do that to this generation of germans this, that wasn't their fault you know she said you should go you should experience a culture you should have a good a good time there and And that's what i did and listen i was 22 23 years old i was very motivated so a big part of my focus was on the basketball but i couldn't entirely separate from the history you know when we played in berlin we visited the memorial to the murdered jews of europe and i remember searching in a database my family's name you know and we we toured the the side of the nuremberg rallies and truthfully, there were some folks associated with my team who were older around my grandmother's age, and I couldn't help but wonder, you know, what what were they doing at that time? Mm-hmm. You know, and so this is just kind of, this is the history, and my best friend on my team in Germany, he was a German national team player from Berlin. We were the exact same age, and I was, of course, the only Jewish player on the team, probably the only Jewish player in the league, and you know, I opened up to him about, you know, my grandparents being Holocaust survivors, losing so much family, and he opened up to me that his family was on the other side of the war and all the guilt and shame that his generation felt from that. Right. And so that perspective taking is really important to, to, you know, to understand and to listen and to, yeah. So that was a really, really special opportunity for me to build that bond with him, to, to, you know, relate to him on that level, but it was complicated, right. Mm -hmm. Playing in Germany was complicated.
1: Did you experience anti-Semitism in Germany or at any point in your career, in, in Stanford, anywhere?
0: Not overt, you know, listen, but but the truth is, like, I had a teammate once who said, hey, any anyone on, on the team Jewish, I have a really funny joke about a Jew joke. You know, I said, yeah, I am, and it's not funny to me, you know, mm. so in my mind, right, I can say, oh, I didn't experience anti-Semitism. That's anti-Semitism, right? And okay. so, and there are always microaggressions, and I've heard comments made. I never had anything serious happen, but... You could argue that even that is serious because you want to be treated in a, you know, you don't want to be treated that way. Um, I, in my life, you know, I've seen property in my hometown just defaced with swastikas. I've seen property when I was in business school at Stanford defaced with swastikas. You know, I've experienced those things. I've had people call me names, you know, growing up. And so I don't think you can be Jewish anywhere in the world and not experience anti-Semitism. As an athlete. Aside from some of the the things that I mentioned, it wasn't really overt or aggressive or anything like that. And again, I, it's nice to think that all, that the court, the field, the comp, the field of competition is a little bit of a safe space in that way.
2: Yeah, hopefully. Wow. Is is there like an inner inner circle of uh, Jewish athletes that make it make it to the to the top
1: <laughs> you level? You remember you the It's a small pamphlet. It's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: The Listen, five of you. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm in it. If so, my dad, you know, listen, my dad's one of the, one of the really great legendary Jewish athletes of all time. He was recently inducted into the international Jewish sports hall of fame. Uh-huh. There are, I think there are you know, Mark Spitz. Mark Spitz, right, is the, he friends with him? Are they friends? I'm not sure. They, if they're friends, they met uh, each but, other? Uh, I, I'd have to ask, but my dad certainly talks about him. Right. And, and even before my dad in basketball, Dolph Shays and, there's a great sense of pride. I think amongst Jewish people in general, when you see a Jewish athlete succeeding, but certainly amongst the Jewish athletes, right? And for me, I, I know like Ali Raisman, you know, who was an Olympic gymnast, right, is Jewish. You, you just, you feel it and you feel real pride for that. And I think in my dad's generation, there are those few athletes you know, who had a lot of success and there, there is a great sense of pride and community there you Lieberman, re- right? Nancy Lieberman, right. you know, Lady Magic a uh, uh, basketball hall of famer is a good example.
1: Yeah, going through a little renaissance now with it because, first of all, you had the YU Max who went on this uh, incredible yep. run, and Ryan Terrell who's still trying to break into the NBA, but you had Steinmetz who, who, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks in baseball, the Yankees just in a deep round in the draft, but the Yankees just drafted an observant Jewish. Uh, Young man. So you have not only Jews, but outwardly observant Jews who are breaking through in sports a little bit. And it's a really, really interesting time. But let's go back Dan. Let's go back to your your college career a little bit, because this really fascinated me and I'd love to learn more from you about it. So, you you know, you're an outstanding athlete in your own right as a young man, but it's your sophomore year at Stanford and you're having this breakout year. You go from averaging three points a game to nearly 18 points a game. That's a huge breakout year. That's a huge improvement. And here you're on the big stage and hoping to make it into the final four. Uh, Tiger Woods is watching. He's he's at this game. Mm. And you tear your ACL. You go down. And that's a horrible, horrible injury. You know, again, I'm just a guy who likes to play ball. Several years ago, I tore my Achilles. And Mm. surgery, six months of coming back. Still haven't been drafted by any team. I'm pretty disappointed. But Uh, the injury did it, man. That's what
0: happened. Here you are, your
1: your breakout year from three points to eighteen points. You're on the cusp of a breakout basketball career, and you tear your ACL and you go down. And you didn't stay down. And you weren't down and out. You came back and did what was necessary to come back. How did you How you do that? Where did you draw that strength from? That example from? What did you need to do in order to be able to overcome? This obstacle that was put in your way.
0: Yeah, listen, like you said, I, I between my sophomore and junior years, I was the most improved player in college basketball. I went from three point four points to eighteen, and you know I was projected as a you know potential first round pick in the NBA draft. My dreams were really coming true. Tore my ACL at the end of the year at home, national television, as you mentioned, Tiger was was there, but my grandmother was sitting twenty feet away from where I got hurt. And, you know, I panicked, of course, I was rolling around in agony on the floor. And when I finally kind of came to my senses, my grandma was kneeling next to me, rubbing my head. Wow. That's all you need to know, right? My grandmother, she survived the Holocaust. She lost a son. She came to America with nothing, not speaking the language. And she built a life. That's what my grandparents went through. My dad came as an immigrant, not speaking the language. He became this legend in the game of basketball watcher losing his brother. That's my example, you know, and mm-hmm. so I... I mourned my injury, you know, and even to this day, if you bring this up in front of my grandma, she'll say, I don't want to talk about it, you know, because she, she, the thing she went through can't be compared to what I went through. I had a knee injury. She, her, her family was killed, but you know, she, this is a disappointment in my life, you know? And so she gave me space to feel it, to mourn it, to own it, but then to move past it. You know, and so, and and I had that great example. So listen, there were tears shed, there were moments of doubt, there were moments of disappointment because we're human, right? And, that, and that's what it is. But I had these great examples of pers- what it takes to persevere, what it takes to keep going. And I just put my head down, I worked and I stayed positive and it, it allowed me yeah. to come back from that.
1: It's huge because so many other people would get stuck and a lot of people would spend their life saying, what could have been, what would have been, what if, and to not get stuck and paralyzed in that place, but but build a beautiful life going forward and not, you can't change what happened, but you can determine where you go. I think that's actually one of your grandmother's sayings, right? It's not about what happens to, it's how you respond to what happens to, right? And that's how you responded yep. in that moment.
0: That, that's right. You know, and again, it, it, I, I learned these things, these, these things, these were values that I inherited. These were examples that I was able to witness and to learn from and Again, that they're not without moments of doubt and disappointment and sadness, and because we all do have that have that part to us as well. But I think that you know, when you when you come from people who survived the Holocaust, who fought, you know, who just kept fighting for something better, you know, that that's that's what it takes. You know, and I was able to kind of apply that into my situation.
1: Wow. Now, not it's not a competition not a competition, but I already like this
0: question, by the way, wherever this is going, I like it.
1: It's not a competition, but you know, the basketball accomplishments that your dad has almost nobody could compete with, but there is one way in which you surpassed your father, right? Your dad won a silver.
0: I already know what what it is. Your dad won
1: the silver at the 73 Maccabea games. And in 2009, you won a gold medal at the Maccabiah Games, which I think are taking place actually right now, or they just That's ended right. Uh, right now in Israel. What did that mean for you, winning that gold medal in Maccabiah Games in Israel? What was that like?
0: Yeah, it's funny you mention it, right? Because my dad is an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> Olympic gold medal <laughs> is a big deal, but... We, he always, we always say, yeah, but I have that a gold medal. He, uh, he, he was a senior in high school in 73, and the great Tal Brody and Mickey Berkowitz, some legendary Israeli players, beat my dad's USA team in the, in the gold medal game. Winning gold in Israel was a great experience, but it was even more so than the athletic accomplishment. That was my first time in Israel. And so it was spiritual for me, reconnecting with the Jewish homeland, and as you know from the book, when my dad and, my, and our family fled Romania, they had passports for Israel. It was Israel that paid money for Jews to leave communism. And at the last minute, they had a chance to come to the United States. But most of our family ended up in Israel. So there was something so deep and meaningful for me about stepping foot on that soil and feeling it and, and touring the country and the Western Wall and Haifa and Masada and the Dead Sea. I felt. I write in my book, I felt it in my bones, right? So. That's what I take more than anything. And I, I told my, it was my sister's, my older sister's first time as well. And I remember saying to her, I'm going to finish my career here. I just mm-hmm. felt it. And I did. Last four years of my career were in Israel. So that in and of itself was enough for me. The fact that we beat Israel in overtime in the gold medal game, and I was the MVP of the comp, like that was all awesome. And, I, and I'm really proud of that. And it was, a great, it was a great experience, but it was bigger than that, right? It was about, it was about reconnecting for me with, with the Jewish homeland.
1: You got to see the beauty of Israel. Unfortunately, Israel is depicted so often as uh, something it's not, this aggressor, this warmonger, apartheid, BDS. Um, Given your time in Israel and given the sort of profile that you and your family have, are you involved in advocating for Israel, trying to set the record straight about Israel, letting people know about the beauty of the real Israel?
0: Without a doubt, I mean, I think through my book, you know, that's a way that I advocate and I, it's all there. It's all in writing. And of course, personally, I, I speak about it as I am right now. It, it's a wonderful, beautiful place, meaningful, fun. You know, there's, there's so much to, to love about, about the state of Israel. And yeah, I'm very, very open about it.
1: Still pick up a basketball. You still play.
0: I say no one wants to watch it happen, but it does happen occasionally. Uh, yeah. I have a group of guys who I enjoy playing with and, you know, there's a switch in there, you know. When you play at that level and it means that much to you, you know, you could always turn it on, but I don't want to anymore, right? I want to, I want to enjoy, and and you don't want to be too competitive about it. You just want to be competitive enough. And I have a group of guys who I play with from time to time that I think it's the right mix, right? Because you know, after all those years of grinding and fighting that hard on the court, it doesn't take much to go back to that place. But yeah. at 38 you know, with, you don't want to go back there, right? Uh, the only thing that could happen there are more injuries and I don't want that. <laughs> so uh, I do enjoy playing, but at the right pace, which Have is you a slow tran- pace.
1: You transition to other sports. Do you play other things now?
0: I don't, I should, you know, I've always, I always enjoyed playing tennis growing up. I, I was never a big golfer. So I, I need to, I need to figure something. I think I'll, you know, hopefully play tennis, you know, as I kind of get older a, a bit, but I enjoy, I enjoy playing sports. I enjoy watching sports for, For all the reasons that we've mentioned, you know, I know and I felt how, what it does for people, the passion that's behind it, the emotion that's behind it, the stories, you know, this is my story, but every athlete who has really just fought and and it means so much for them, there's always a reason behind it, right? So I always think it's very interesting to learn what drives athletes, why it matters to them so much.
1: Well, Dan, thank you for sharing your story with the world. Thank you for joining us behind the beam and sharing it with us. And, and I feel like, um, you know, given your, your grandma and she should live and be well and be healthy and fast for many, many more young kippers. Um, yeah. But given your grandmother, your grandparents' history, the Holocaust, given the story through your dad and to you, can't help but end. And, and the number on the back of your dad's jersey end with Am Yisrael Chai. The Jewish people, really, the Grunfeld story are alive and well. So thank you so much for joining us by the Bima. Thank you for letting us uh, listen more into your story with you.
0: It was great to be here with you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was a great
1: conversation, Rabbi Brody.
0: Wow.
2: Did you learn yeah. about basketball? I learned a lot about everything. I'll be honest. I didn't know him. I didn't know his father. I haven't. I did hear of the Knicks because I went to <laughs> Knicks games when I was growing up. But I was amazed. It's such an incredible story. What's, what's your takeaway? Lessons learned? What do you, what do you got? I, I love the part where he spoke about family. Just making sure you know, you know your family, your family's history. And he said, you don't have to write a book but you got to speak about it. And you know, when I go to Sinai or some of the, 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 the assisted livings in the community, you know, there's so many times we, we hear some of these people talk about the experiences that they had growing up and some incredible stories. I say to them, do your children know these stories? Do your right. grandchildren, do your great grandchildren know what you've done with your life? Yeah, the family narrative, that's what gives us
1: strength and, and knowing yeah. it is, uh, is powerful. Um, first of all, I love to learn about his grandmother she should be well. I love that she fasted on Yom Kippur almost 90 times. <laughs> what, what is that? That's you know, great. Surviving the Holocaust. But what what strikes me the most is is perseverance, right? Is strength. What strikes me the strongest is is the fact that when he was injured, he's lying on the court. Tiger Woods is watching. National game is watching, and his grandmother's holding him. She's right. Like, but and basically not not judgmentally, critically, but like, buddy. I survived the Holocaust. I lost 70 family members. You're going to get right. through this. That's it's going to be okay. It's right. going to be okay. So right. perspective, strength, perseverance, full circle. resilience, resiliency, coming full circle, right? The Maccabi, like, unbelievable, winning the gold mm-hmm. state right. of Israel. There was playing. no state of Israel. There was yeah. no. Yeah. Roe oh, Wallenberg saving her life. And her grandson is playing basketball, state of Israel, Hatikva, Maccabi again. What a, what a psh, wow. It's inspiring. Emotional beautiful great night it really was a great conversation and so glad that he joined us for it and uh, it's a book worth uh, worth checking out we are nearing the 100th episode we want to share your impressions nothing to do with us this is not our ego our guests we've had amazing guests men and women and jewish and non-jewish and religious and not religious we've had amazing amazing guests leave us a message at 561-247-4757 561-247-4757 or email behind the beam at gmail.com let us know your favorite guest, your favorite moment, your favorite remark in an interview. What did something for you for that hundredth episode? We want to be able to reflect back both on that and Rabbi Brody's wardrobe changes. Are they? Are, so, they,
2: are they? able to leave a message? That if it's yeah, a great message we that's how it works.
1: Leave a message at that number. Right. And then we'll play that message. Yeah. Play that message. So make sure it's appropriate. Leave a message. Favorite moment. We're excited. We're looking forward. Most importantly, we're looking forward. We hope it can work out to be reunited all the hosts together again that That's would be great
2: the biggest, the biggest hope
1: that would be the biggest hope so anyway thank you to dan grunfeld thank you rabbi brody for being back garth brooks thank you for being Big here
2: year this year i just wanted to tell you this is i'm so excited i've never been more pumped for a year so you know i wanted to get into um, that i guess we'll have to do it next week next time, yeah.
1: every year rabbi brody comes back for the summer i'm fired this is gonna be the year I got <laughs> ideas. And I want to know, what is it about the summer? What creates that margin or space that you're able to dream? What reignites that fire that makes you come back? So for next week, Rabbi Brody, here's your homework. We're going to talk about it. When you come back on fire and you have all these dreams and plans, you ever stop and measure and say, did I accomplish them? Did I achieve them? Did I make it happen? Yeah. Or is it just like you have them and you run with them? And what is it that enables you to have those dreams, that fire, to run with it? And uh, how could other people find that inspiration and run with it and, and move with it? All that next week. And more. (laughs) And more. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.
2: Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show,
0: please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.